Today's reading is from the book of Amos, chapter 9, verse 13 through 15. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never be again unrooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Sulai. I'll tell you, that Old Testament poetry is hard to read sometimes. Aren't you glad there weren't any Old Testament names in there, too? Because that gets even really tricky. Hi, everybody. I hope your Thanksgiving was good. Um, It's been a weekend of eating evilly, but it's been fun. So, Uh, If you are new to Redemption Arcadia, like in the last couple of weeks, uh, you're like, okay, do they have a regular preacher? Because this is the third different person we've seen up here. And that's a good thing, actually. Uh, my name is Frank, and I'm the lead pastor here. And I haven't been here the last, or I haven't preached the last couple of weeks. Um, and one of the reasons is because we really believe that uh, this is God's word and not necessarily just a preacher's word. And so that's important. But we also like to develop young leaders. Two weeks ago, we had Sean Myers here from uh, the Peoria uh, congregation, and that was kind of like old home day for us because he was here with us for three years doing his residency uh, before we sent him out. And it's just good to have him back at least once a week. Wasn't it good to have Sean here two weeks ago? That was really good. Okay, not as enthusiastic as I thought. Are you glad I'm back? With that? that would be really exciting. Oh, okay. And then last week, of course, Cody, you, uh, most of you know Cody, when he's not leading worship, he's usually preaching, and, and he's going to be preaching even more and more because uh, um, he, just, he, he has developed into a great communicator. I just listened to uh, his message from last week, um, and it was awesome on Joel. He hit everything that I felt um, I, like I would have... When you're a preacher and you listen to other people preach, most of the time you're thinking, I wouldn't have done it that way. But listening to Sean and Cody, I was thinking, I'd like to be able to do it that way. And that's a good thing. And that's one of the things that I think uh, Redemption Church is uh, really good at. The other thing is that there's going to be some overlap, interestingly enough, between Joel and Amos, even though they were in completely different centuries and had essentially different messages. But uh, eventually we're going uh, to be getting there. Um, by the way, this is me... I just want to make sure this is clear. This is me not mentioning anything about the ASU U of A game. That's, I'm not mentioning it at all. Okay, so <clears throat> anyway, so I didn't mention that. So uh, before we get there, uh, this is the time of year that we talk about our Advent offering. First of all, uh, just look at the stuff we have. I, this, is a, this was for the Refugee uh, Women's Health Clinic, all the stuff that we've collected. And this is why the Refugee Women's Health Clinic um, really depends on us, because this is a big deal to them. And you guys have responded well once again. They always collect it early. This is the last Sunday of the collection for that. And once again, uh, you guys have shown your colors. Uh, now we move into the regular Advent offering, where this is money that we give over and above our regular giving during the Advent season, which starts uh, next Sunday. And every year we have three different ministries that we're trying to help out that need um, 
that need cash, okay? Every other year, we're required to do redemption, foster care, and adoption. You know that Redemption Church is deeply involved in the foster care and adoption uh, crisis and situation in Arizona. Uh, we've been instrumental in helping to alleviate some of the pressure in that, in, especially with our connections with all the other churches in um, Arizona, which has been really good, but they need uh, operating capital. And so every other year, every congregation is asked to give a third of their uh, Advent offering to them. So this is that year. Uh, the second uh, group that we're doing is Hope for Children in Ethiopia. Uh, we've been introduced to this ministry over the last 18 months. Cody is deeply involved in this ministry. It's led by Yasu, who has been here several times, and he also attends this church, usually at the 5 o'clock service. But he's from Ethiopia, lives here in Arizona, came here as a refugee, is a citizen now, and now it goes back and forth to Ethiopia, helping to run this uh, ministry. Cody has visited uh, Ethiopia, and specifically this ministry, to see uh, not only the devastation there, but also all the work that Hope for Children is doing. But they're doing it on a shoestring. And so um, we helped them last year. We're going to help them again this year. Uh, the newest one is this immigration hope. We have a heart for a lot of the same things that God has a heart for, and that's good. In this church, we have a heart for what God has a heart for. And, and to be able to express that in every context can be very difficult and challenging. Uh, fortunately, we have close proximity to many refugee communities. So we do a lot of hands-on work with refugee communities, which is beautiful. We've helped many families resettle in Maricopa County, coming from other countries, primarily from Africa and the Middle East, and that's been really good. We don't have much... Uh, in, uh, tangential to the immigration issue, which we do actually have a heart for. People coming to America looking for a better life, a better way, and wanting to do it legally. Uh, immigration Hope is a fairly new ministry. They're in a couple of other cities already and doing incredible work. They're opening in the East Valley now, and uh, they are doing it in connection with uh, Redemption West Mesa and Chris Amaro, which is our uh, only bilingual uh, congregation of the nine Redemption Congregation uh, churches. So um, we're excited that we have somebody in Redemption that has expertise in this and also uh, has a ministry that's tangential to his congregation that he can help and he can work and, and so now we have found a way in Arcadia. This is something the elders have been praying about for more than a year, that we'd find a way to be able to help immigrants. And now we've found a way through Redemption West Mesa. So Redemption West Mesa is in the process of helping Immigration Hope get started in the East Valley. Uh, and they need some seed money for operating capital uh, as well. And I want you to know that um, because they're a new ministry that we're going to be supporting, I have fully investigated this. I've gone to all the Immigration Hope meetings. I've been in the lead team, the Redemption lead team meetings, where we've talked about this. Uh, I've gone to the meetings and met the, the principals who are in this um, ministry, including John, who is a 75-year-old ex-missionary who also has legal expertise, who is leading this ministry here. He's an incredible guy. He's got way more ener energy than me and Cody put together, which may not be all that much, but he's got a lot of energy for a 75-year-old. And, and they are committed to helping people, but only to do it within, which is important to us also, within the law, which frankly, if you've ever looked at immigration law in the United States, it's a mess, and it just keeps getting, that can just keeps getting kicked down the road. It needs to be fixed. But in the meantime, there are people trying to come here legally 
uh, and, and need to do it under the uh, auspices of this particular law. So that's what they do. And so we're excited that this is, we found a way that we can help and serve immigrants and do it legally. And, and Thanksgiving Day, you can ask Cody, I try not to text anybody on Thanksgiving Day, but I text Cody, said, sorry to text you on Thanksgiving, but I've been thinking a lot about the minor prophets, because we're in this series on the minor prophets, which, by the way, thank you for showing up four weeks in a row. These have been some dark and distressing messages, amen? Yeah, it's going to be that way again today, too. Anyway, Micah 6.8 says that God's call on us is to do justice and to love mercy and live in a merciful way to others. In, in one way it's translated as kindness, and to walk in humility. And as I looked at those three things that we're going to be doing, as well as the Refugee Women's Health Clinic for Advent, it, I feel like that's a, that's a great picture of Micah 6.8, that we are, we are involved in justice issues, as we should be, uh, that we are acting mercifully and, and with kindness, and that we are walking in humility uh, with our Lord. So that's our Advent offering this year. Uh, we believe we're obeying the law of God while also living under the spirit of the law and the commands of his love and compassion. Okay? So on the internet, on the website, there are two separate places where you can give. If you, if you give regularly on the website, there's, gonna, there's an additional place now where you can give for the Advent offering as well. If you give here in church, you can just mark your uh, check or your envelope Advent offering, and that would be over and above your regular. It's like a Christmas gift, okay? So let me pray, and then we'll get into Amos. Oh, I'm excited about Amos, all right? Uh, Lord God, we thank you and praise you for who you are for your love and your mercy, uh, that you loved us first and now call us to love you back and to love people. People made it, created in your image and likeness. So God, help us to do that. And we pray that we would, uh, we would be people that, that walk in justice, in mercy, and in humility, all of those things. And that's hard to do sometimes. There's tension there. But we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit filling us that we might be able to do that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the things I love about the prophets, all the prophets, including the minor prophets, is their stories, their backstories, if there is one. There are a couple of prophets that we really don't know very much about other than what they proclaimed and wrote down. Um, but some of these guys have incredible stories, and Amos has one of the most interesting backstories of any of the prophets. If you'll remember the first week of this series, we said that there were four of the 17 prophets that proclaimed during the 8th century B.C., when there was a divided kingdom, a northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah, and that two preached primarily to the northern kingdom and two preached primarily to the southern kingdom. And the first week we did one of the ones that was preaching to the northern kingdom, and that was Hosea. Amos is the other one in the 8th century BC that preaches to the northern kingdom, Israel, with their capital city of Samaria, the southern kingdom being Judah, with their capital city remaining as uh, Jerusalem. But Hosea and Amos are two really, really different guys with different messages. So Hosea was more of a professional religious person. Amos was just a, just a regular guy that God called for a very short period of time. Hosea preached over the course of about 30 years, and Amos preached over the course of a few months, if that. Uh, and here's uh, one other difference is that Hosea preached about the sins of the people of Israel against God, and Hosea, uh, Amos preaches primarily about the sins of the people of uh, Israel against their own people. So there's a difference there, but then here's the biggest difference. 
And I think this is, this is where the backstory gets interesting. Hosea was part of the northern kingdom. That's where he lived. Amos wasn't. Amos lived in the southern kingdom. He's from a place called Tekoa, which is about 10 miles south of the border between uh, Judah and Israel. So he's, he's leaving his hometown. He's leaving his sinners, and he's coming up and he's preaching to the northern kingdom. And remember, there's, there's still antipathy between Israel and Judah. They're both God's people, but there's antipathy between the two of them. So think about that dynamic. The guy from across the border is coming over to tell us all of our sins and our foibles. So you look at chapter 1, verse 1, and, and by the way, you could do an hour just on the information we get in this first verse. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds, he was a shepherd, sheep and goats, of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. <laughs> Here you go, Amos. I'm not giving you necessarily a vision about your people, but about the people who live north of you, okay? In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, Jeroboam was a problem, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So we can date this right at about 754 B.C. This is when his... Um, his ministry took place. If you remember, uh, 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 Hosea preached like from 755 to 725. Uh, Amos is preaching right at 754, and he's a fig dresser. He's a shepherd and a fig dresser. It tells us in the first uh, verse that he's a shepherd. We also find out in in the seventh chapter that he, in addition to being a shepherd, he's a fig dresser. What in the wide world of sports is a fig dresser? So here's here is what Amos would do. He's like a lot of guy. He's like a lot of regular people, okay? He works this job regularly for about 11 months and three weeks out of the year as a shepherd. And then once a year, right before the fig harvest, he contracts him out to the fig farmers who need fig dressers to come in and prepare the fig harvest for it to be plucked and, and sold at market. And the way you would dress a fig is you would be handed something that's as sharp as a razor blade and you would go through the, uh, the fig trees and one fruit by one fruit, you would insert the blade into the fruit just a little bit and, and put a little small incision in order to drain off the excess water. And what this did to the fig, and you'd have them all over the orchards. And if you were a really fast fig dresser, you could maybe two, do two trees in one day. I mean, that's how tedious and, and hard this is. And the farmers would pay pretty well for this. It was a very good part-time seasonal job for anybody who could get it. But the reason they did this to the figs was that it, it, it hastened the ripening of the figs so that they could plan their harvest a little bit. They could, okay, we've, we've dressed the figs. They're going to be ready for harvest in two or three days. And then they get all the people out there to harvest them, but it would, it would also help to sweeten the fruit. By draining off that excess water, the fruit would actually get sweeter, and they could get more money at the marketplace for it. So that's, that's what he did. So here's why. Look, I'm obviously more excited about the fig dressing than you are, but here's why I would talk about this, okay? Amos is just a regular guy. He's, he's, just, he's, he's tending his sheep and his goats, and he's dressing figs. He's minding his own business, and here comes God, and he calls him into this very difficult and challenging ministry. Remember, this is 754, the kingdom split with great antipathy in 922, 170 years earlier, and then the Assyrians come in and sack the northern kingdom and Samaria in 722, about 32 years after Amos preaches. Now, The type of message that God gives to Amos to proclaim 
is always unwelcome. It's, nobody wants to hear this message. Nobody. Here's the message. You are a sinner. You are unfaithful. And you need to figure this out before the consequences come because the consequences are a coming and they will not be pleasant. People don't like that message. They don't like that message at all. But consider that this message is coming from a total outsider, somebody who doesn't even live in the northern kingdom, and he's brazenly walking into the northern kingdom, into the places where they had these temples of worship, where they believed, the northern kingdom believed they were worshiping God the best way they knew how, and he's saying, you're doing it wrong, you're all messed up, and God's unhappy about it. That they're not going to be very pleased about that. In fact, we have this little section, this little interlude in chapter 7 about that. So this is seven chapters in. Amos has been preaching, and it starts in, in verse 10 of chapter 7. Listen to this. And this is, we get out of the poetry, the proclamation, and we get into more of a narrative. And here's what happens. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam the king of Israel, saying... So, here's Amaziah is the priest at Bethel, which is a major uh, worshipful city uh, in the northern kingdom, in the southern part of the northern kingdom. Obviously, Amos was preaching there, and Amaziah did not like the proclamation because he's messing up his, his, his mojo. He's, he's, he's stirring the pot in his own backyard, and he's saying things that Amaziah would never say, and, he's, and Amos is saying things that he knows the people do not want to hear. And so he goes to the king about it. He's friends with the king, Jeroboam, and he says, hey, guess what? We need to do something about this problem. Give me the permission to do something about it. And he said, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. Notice he didn't go and say, I'm really upset with Amos. Can you help me do something? He says, no, Amos is coming after you. That's how you stir up the king. The land is not able to bear all his words, for thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from this land. And so he gets sent. Amaziah gets sent by Jeroboam to Amos. And so Amos comes to Am uh, Amaziah comes to Amos and says, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. You have no business being in here. Then Amos answered Amaziah and said, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. I was minding my own business, pal. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line, and you yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel will surely go into exile away from its land. So here comes Amaziah. He doesn't like what's going on. He gets Jeroboam's permission, and he goes to Amos. He wants Amos to go back from where he's coming from. Go to Judah. And deal with their sin. We're fine. We're fine. Look, everything's going good. Everybody's happy. Everybody's getting along. The economy's good. What are you bothering us for? We got our alliances. Everything's set. Leave us alone. Judah's the problem. You go and talk to Judah. Amaziah treats Amos like he's a heretic, like he's a false teacher. 
And the irony of Amaziah is that the priesthood of Israel was specifically supposed to hold Israel accountable to Torah, to the law of Moses, and he's not doing that. He's been thoroughly corrupted, and he's actually starting to, he's, he's being a priest in the temples of Baal. So they're worshiping false gods. But it's not just that the priesthood had become irreversibly corrupt. They were commanded to or called to by the people of Israel. The people of Israel were going to the priests and saying, we want you to only preach about how wonderful we are. We want you to preach peace, peace. We want you to preach that everything is fine. We want you to preach that you're wonderful people, and we want you to preach that God is happy with us. That's what we want you to do. And oh, by the way, we're paying your salary as well. And so the priesthood had become corrupted by all of this. The people wanted only messages of peace, blessing, and comfort. They didn't want messages of rebuke. They didn't want messages that talked about sin. They didn't want to uh, talk about how God wanted them to end oppression and corruption and exploitation and deception. They didn't want to be reminded about the importance of humility and obedience. Things were going too well. And frankly, this is one of the biggest problems in the American church today. It just is. We need to understand that. The vast majority of people I talk to are looking for a church that, quote, will make them feel good about themselves. That's the primary thing that people look for in a church today. I want to feel good about myself. I work hard all week long. I want to go to church and hear about how good I am. I want my bias to be affirmed and confirmed by God. I don't want to go to church and hear about God's bias, and now I maybe have to change the way I'm thinking about things. I just want God to affirm and confirm me. I'm looking for a social media God. That's what I, a God that puts a like on me. Okay? That's a problem. That is a problem. By far the number one reason that people don't stay at Redemption Church, I found, is because we get after it. We talk about sin. We talk about the issues that are out there. Now, we always talk about the gospel and redemption and restoration and victory. It always ends there because that's always where God ends because he's a God of love. But how do we get... You don't just, you don't just start there. Otherwise, there's no message. The point of the church is to proclaim the gospel and exalt Jesus. It's not to exalt the people and to proclaim your wonderfulness or my wonderfulness. That's not the point of church. What's the point of church and what's the point of Jesus if we don't first understand that we have a real need in the first place? If we're all so good and wonderful and church is only about affirming and confirming our wonderfulness, then why do we even bother with church? The world can do that for you. You want to be affirmed? You want to, you want, just go into a store and spend a little money. They're happy. They're, oh man, I, I'll go to Zinburger, order the bacon cheeseburger. That's an excellent choice, Mr. Switzer. Oh, you see, I eat a lot there. They know me by my given name, but that's an excellent, I've been affirmed in my cheeseburger selection. I can get affirmation anywhere. Am I getting truth anywhere? See, God's the one who gives us truth. Cody talked about this last week. We're a little bit uncomfortable with truth. We're okay with flattery, though. We all, every one of us, you need to understand, this preaches to me first and foremost before it ever goes public. We all first need messages of rebuke and correction, and then we're ready to receive the message of love, grace, mercy, and salvation. And that's what Amos is doing. He, this is not like Habakkuk when... Um, Sean preached two weeks ago, and he says, the prophet Habakkuk, 
is at a point with the southern kingdom where it's too late now. He's lamenting the fact that there's no going back now. Amos is saying there's still time. Turn from your wicked ways and God will restore you. God will save you. So that's what Amos is doing. And in verse 12, it's interesting, Amaziah calls Amos a seer, not a prophet. That's actually an insult. That's a term of derision. It's a term of contempt. He is literally calling Amos a heretic, a false teacher. But Amos calmly tells Amaziah, no, you're the one who's the false teacher. Amos also explains that none of this was his idea. This was God's mission, God's doing. And then he tells Amaziah at the very end, he says, because you reject this message personally, you personally are going to suffer some very unpleasant judgment. And that's exactly what ended up happening to Amaziah. So, back to the beginning of the book, okay? And if you think I've been excited about the fig dressing, just wait till you see me during chapters one and two of this book. This, the way this is arranged, the way that Amos proclaims this message, and the way it's written down, is rhetorical genius, and, and, and what happens in these first two chapters is there are eight oracles. An oracle is a short sermonette. Uh, it's, it's, it's a quick uh, uh, message from God about straightening things out. So there's eight of these oracles. The first seven oracles are two to three verses each. The eighth oracle is 11 verses, and we'll eventually get to the eighth oracle because that's the most important one. But the first seven oracles set up the people for the eighth oracle. And, and before we get going on that, I'm so excited also because I have a map today. I just, I, it's map day at Redemption. So here's, here's the, the, the geographical landscape in Amos' day, 754 B.C. Here's Israel, the northern kingdom, the capital, Samaria. Here's Judah, the southern kingdom, two tribes here, ten tribes up there. There's the capital, Jerusalem. And here is Syria. Syria is mentioned in these oracles. It's actually mentioned as Damascus. Here's Gaza. That's the Philistines. There's Tyre, the Phoenicians. No relation to us. There's Ammon, Moab, Edom, Judah, and Israel. It's very important to understand this map as, as uh, Amos begins uh, to preach. So that's going to be the backdrop for what, what is happening in these first uh, two chapters. Okay. So what happens is God, through Amos, comes to Israel and he proclaims a judgment and then, this is not in the text, but this is the intent and the purpose of how this text is set up. I imagine the people of Israel responding to each one of these oracles, okay? So I'll give you my imagination of the people of Israel responding to what Amos is preaching. So here's the first oracle. God says to Israel, for the three transgressions, what's a transgression? It's a grievous sin. Horrible, awful, terrible sins. Not a white lie, not, not fudging a tip on your expense account. These are major, major sins. For the three transgressions, and then this is a rhetorical device. No, the four transgressions. That means you're really in trouble. If you ever walk into your boss's office and your boss says, for the three mistakes that you made on that contract, no, the four mistakes, you're in real big trouble. You, 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 you just better settle in because you're going to get rebuked, okay? And this is what God does in every one of these. For the three transgressions of Damascus, that's Syria to the north. Now, this is Syria. Israel and Syria. What kind of relationship do you think Israel and Syria had? Not a trick question. Pretty much the same as today. They don't like each other. 
So now God is going to judge. He's saying to the people of Israel, I'm going after Syria. What do you think the people of Israel are doing? Yes, sick them, God. We can't stand those, those Syrians. Yes, it's about time. This is the Syrians, not the Assyrians, okay? Yes. The second oracle, God says to Israel, for the three transgressions of Gaza. No, the four. Gaza is the Philistines. Read your Old Testament. The Philistines were the greatest, most hated enemy of the nation of Israel. He's going after the Philistines, and he says, no, I will not turn away my holy judgment. They're in trouble. And the people of Israel, imagine them saying, yes, the boy is preaching. Now, my brothers and sisters, my brother Amos, you the man. In ancient Hebrew, that would be Haishata. Haishata, Amos. Walking around. T-shirts, Haishata, Amos. The third oracle, God says to Israel, for the three transgressions of Tyre, those nasty Phoenicians to the northwest that were always economically oppressing the Israelites in every one, every one of their contracts that they did. No, with the four transgressions, I will not abate my judgment. And Israel, Yahweh, Yahweh, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. You're getting a sense of the pattern, right? God says to Israel in oracle number four, for the three transgressions of Edom. Oh, who's Edom? Edom is Esau's people, the brother of Jacob, that bad, nasty brother that did not find the favor of God. Oh, yes, yes, God is going after Edom. He's going after Jacob's brother, those Edomites. They're worse than the termites. I'm so glad this is happening. My holy judgment will not be withheld. And the people of Israel are saying, you know, it serves Jacob's brother right. Keep on preaching, Amos. Oracle number five, God says to Israel, for the three transgressions of the Ammonites... They're to the southeast. No, the four. You guessed it. Judgment is a coming. And Israel says, well, good. We've always hated the Ammonites. They treated us very badly during the Exodus some 400 years earlier when we were trying, excuse me, some uh, 700 years earlier when we were trying to come out of uh, Egypt. Oracle number six, God says, for the three transgressions of Moab. Nah, the four transgressions. I will not turn away my judgment. And the people of Israel said, good, something in Utah will eventually be named after that nation. Let's avoid the Christmas rush and punish them right now. <laughs> then Oracle 7, God says, for the three transgressions of Judah. E, Judah, the southern kingdom. No, the four transgressions. I will judge them with my holy judgment. And I imagine the people of Israel saying, hmm, what, what, what? Ju Judah? Hmm. Yeah, I guess we can see that, but that's a little close for comfort. A little close for comfort. But yeah, I can, I can see that. They deserve it for not seeing things our way 170 years ago. This is it. God is finally getting them for splitting up the kingdom. All right, what's next, Brother Amos? What you got for us? And here's Oracle number eight the one that specifically spells out sins, and the one that's 11 verses long, not two or three verses. And here's what Amos is called to preach. Starting in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for the three transgressions of Israel. Think they were stunned? Yeah, they were stunned. And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. 
because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above his roots and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? Is that not who I am? O people of Israel, declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press down in your place, as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. He doesn't get specific with any of the other nations, but he gets specific with Israel. This is a way of preaching to Israel. Verses 6 through 8 are all crimes against the Mosaic Law, but they're the part of the Mosaic Law that's horizontal. It's, It's what we're not supposed to do or what we are called to do with other people. This is not the vertical part of the Mosaic Law, of the Ten Commandments. It's the horizontal part. You're acting without justice to people around you, your own kin. And, 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 and verse 6 specifically says that you're selling the righteous for silver and the poor for sandals. It refers to judges taking bribes and people bringing legal actions against those that don't have the resources to defend themselves because they know that they will win. How often in our current marketplace... Have you been involved in a meeting where somebody is bringing a legal action against somebody else or some other entity and their strategy is they don't have the resources to defend them so we'll win before we ever get to court? This was going on 2,800 years ago in Israel and God was not happy about it. That's not justice. It's systematic oppression of those who are already poor. Verse 7, it's not enough that the poor and afflicted are already low. The Israelites push their heads into the ground. In other words, total humiliation. And verse 7b, the second half of 7, there's two things about this here. All, number one, all men were willing to engage in the fertility cult of the Canaanite religion. In other words, uh, the prostitutes of Baal. Sleeping with temple prostitutes as an act of worship, trying to manipulate the gods. All the Israelite men were doing that. That's where you would pay money, go to a temple of Baal, you'd pay money to sleep with a prostitute, and that was supposed to appease the gods and manipulate them to show you favor. But not only that, men were also, in the same family, men were willing to sleep with the same woman. In other words, this is an absolute degradation of men. This is not necessarily about the sin of men. We know that human beings can sin. This is specifically about how women are being oppressed by men in their context, and God is not happy about it. Abusing women. 
Verse 8, garments taken in pledge for a loan were supposed to be returned to the, um, uh, at night. So if you needed a loan from somebody, somebody who has more money than you, you would pledge your garment because a garment back then actually had value. That was maybe your only asset. You'd pledge your garment, your cloak, and you'd take the money. But the lender was supposed to give you back the cloak at night, even if you hadn't repaid the money yet, so that you'd have something to sleep on or in or cover you. But they weren't doing that. Instead, what they were doing was the lenders were taking the cloaks and they were mocking the people that had borrowed the money by sleeping on those cloaks on the altars of Baal, on the false god altars. This is insipid. Verses 9 through 12 are God reminding the Israelites just who he is. I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you this land. I'm the one who blesses you. I'm the one who saves you. I'm your provider and your protector. Why do you keep going off the rails? Why do we keep going off the rails? Why do I keep going off the rails? And verse 12 specifically is that reference to people demanding that the preachers tickle their ears and serve their felt needs. It's the same thing today. I'm going to go to the church that makes me feel good about myself, has the best coffee and the best programming for children. That's what I'm looking for. Verses 13 through 16 is God saying, nothing can outpower, out-sovereign, or outsmart me. You, you can spend 24 hours a day in LA fitness. You can get more degrees than a thermometer. You can have all the wealth of King Solomon. You can uh, live in a country that has the greatest military might ever. You can have all of that. It's nothing compared to the power and the sovereignty of God. That's who you should place your faith in is in God. But it's no different than today. We place our faith in all these false gospels. So the rest of the book, seven chapters. Chapters three through five are a series of prophecies, warnings, and lament. This is important to understand. Lament. Lament. We talk about the power of the gospel and the power of Jesus, and we sing songs to that end. The victory of Je- Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior. Okay, some of you might remember that song. I don't, I, if this were a Baptist church, we'd be singing right now. But, but we sing about those things, and we talk about that, and that's good. But we need to remember the gospel isn't just about power and victory. It's also about sorrow and grief and mourning and lament. Look around you. This world's messed up. We're messed up. And it pains us. And we're heartbroken over it. The sorrow that the gospel shows us is also the sorrow that then directs us into his loving arms. It's not just about power. It's also about lament. The prophets lamented. The psalmists lamented. Jesus lamented in the New Testament. He lamented over Jerusalem. Lament is a part of the gospel and we need to embrace it and understand it because God is the only one who can bring hope, healing, and comfort and we need that and it comes through Jesus Christ. So God is laying out his case against his people. They've broken covenant. They've committed spiritual adultery and his people are going to experience as a result of that distress and anguish and woe. And both God and his people lament this tragic state of affairs and if they would only be his people they'd be safe. And the last of these oracles in chapters 3 through 5 is verses 18 through 27 in chapter 5. 
probably the most famous passage in Amos. Here's what Amos says. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Cody talked about this last week. This day of the Lord thing's a big deal. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. What? It's as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against a wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom and no brightness with no brightness in it? God says, I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals. This idea of fattened animals is, is his reference to you have all this wealth but you've placed your faith in it and not in me. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring, me, bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikhuth, your king, and Kiron, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, your idols, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. The big idea of this lament is very simple. God does not want ritual, religion, or piety. He wants righteousness and justice and relationship. He wants faith and the character that, that demonstrates that faith. That's what he's looking for. That's the proper offering to God. Those are the best offerings we can make to God. And he, he mentions the day of the Lord. It was in, in the early 8th century that the day of the Lord vernacular uh, came into popular usage. And God's people wanted the day of the Lord. They pined for the day of the Lord because they were sure that their empty religion was still worthy of God's praise and it was going to be a wonderful day for them. But Amos tells them the truth. He says, Religious acts void of ethical living only infuriates God. The great Old Testament scholar J.A. Motyer writes this, Religion without morality attracts divine revulsion. Do we want to attract God's divine revulsion? Do you ever wonder if we do this, if our religious acts and our pious and passionate devotion to our causes, our policies, and our politics, rather than trusting God, actually infuriates Him? Do we ever think about that? Verses 18 and 19 are taken right out, or not taken right out of Isaiah, but you will also find them in Isaiah chapter 58. The people yearn for the day of the Lord because they believe that that's when they're going to receive praise from God, but it's not. He says it's like uh, you're out running from a lion and, and you run into a bear. It's like walking into your home where you feel safe and you lean up against the wall to take off your shoe and a serpent bites you because a serpent's been hiding there. I hike every Tuesday morning with a good friend of mine. We've been doing this for 10 years. We start at 4.15 out at the mountain preserves. And we hike for almost two hours and we just talk. And, and uh, several months ago, as we were getting started, we have flashlights and everything. Several months ago, as we were getting started, it was dark. And right at the trailhead, just 10, 10 yards into the trail, I stopped because my shoe was untied. So I bent over to uh, tie my shoe, and there's this little cave. It's carved out of the side of the, uh, of the mountain, right there, right there, tiny little cave. And I'm tying my shoe, and we both start to hear, 
And Bruce, who's freaked out about rattlesnakes, he goes, it's a rattlesnake! And I, he's, it's a rattlesnake somewhere! And he's got his light going everywhere, you know. And I said, Bruce, calm down. It's just a bird. Rattlesnakes know not to be out. This is a safe trail. This is the rattlesnakes. We have an agreement with the rattlesnakes. The rattlesnakes stay away from the people trails, and we stay away from where they're hiding. Okay? Finally, I'm done tying my shoe, and there's still this rattle. And finally, I took my flashlight, and I shined it in there, and there's a rattlesnake in there coiled and ready to strike. See, I was on the safe trail. My mind was like, nothing bad's going to happen to me. Everything's fine. There's the rattlesnake. This is the picture that Amos is trying to give the people of Israel. You think everything's fine. You think you're going to be fine. But you're in really big trouble. So for the Israelites, they believed that the day of the Lord was the day that God would once for all put Israel ahead of all the other nations in power, economy, and pleasure. In fact, for Israel, the day of the Lord became the Assyrian conquest in 722. And for the southern kingdom, Judah, it became the Babylonian siege in 605. And for the people of the intertestamental period, that, that last 400 years before Jesus is born, it became the idea that the day of the Lord was going to be when first the Greek yoke was thrown off the people of God, and then the Romans took over the Greeks, and then it was going to be that the Romans would throw off, uh, he would throw the Roman yoke off the people of God. That was their dream for the day of the Lord, and none of that ever happened. And so then in the New Testament, Jesus came and the day of the Lord becomes the real day of the Lord when Jesus comes again. And there's going to be one little difference, and Cody talked about it last week. Is it going to be a dark day or is it going to be a bright day? That one little difference. Is there genuine repentance? Have we genuinely turned from our false gospels and embraced the one true gospel, Jesus Christ? Are we really doing what our faith calls us to do. That is the difference. And verses 21 through 24 are so famous. I want to reread them. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them in the peace offerings of your fatted animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Literally, the ancient Hebrew in there says, your offerings make me sick to my stomach. I want to throw up when I see you making these offerings without any sort of ethical and faithful living. It makes me nauseous. And the offering I want from you is none of this stuff. You can do that if you want, but what I really want is for you to be a blessing to others because I have blessed you. That was the call on Abraham in Genesis 12. I'm going to bless you and now you need to be a blessing to others, to all the other nations. We need to remember that grace is like water. It always flows downhill and settles in the lowest places. Grace always flows downhill and settles in the lowest places. But you and I we are constantly trying to figure out how to lift ourselves up and out and over and beyond grace. We did it ourselves. Self-righteousness, arrogance, pride. I can do it better than God. Verse 25, while religion without morality causes divine disgust, it is also uh, equally true that morality without worship is vain self-righteous arrogance. There, there are many people 
who want nothing to do with church or Jesus, but count themselves as God's people because they've attached themselves to, in their view, all the right causes. And they are just as lost as those who are hypocrites because they're self-righteous, arrogant, and filled with pride. And God is repulsed by that. Divine revulsion. God must be our affection and our relationship. He still wants us to be in community, in church, praying, studying his words, singing together. Why? Because that's where we know him, where we know others created in his image and after his likeness, where God can know us and where others can know us. That's where that happens. He wants us here to be filled and equipped and empowered. And then we go out and we do God's bidding. And yet, even with all this judgment, listen to how this book ends. Listen to his prophecy and how it ends. Verse 11 in chapter 9. In that day I will rise up, raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Again, God does not intend that his judgment is final, but rather that it is a tool to bring about the repentance of his people for redemption. And I know this is so hard to see. This is so hard to see. Because I know in this room, I know in this room, people are going through really hard stuff right now. But in God's judgment, there is great mercy, love, and wisdom. It's there. We may not see it or feel it now, but it's there. He's got it figured out. R.C. Sproul writes of, of the book of Amos, but as the Lord has done throughout the history of salvation, he would use this destruction, the Assyrian destruction, as the means of, his saving, of saving his faithful remnant. Now you've got to ask, if you're reading this, what's a booth of David? What is David's booth? What is that? Well, this is referencing David's booth practically, symbolically, and specifically. Practically, a booth is a tent-like shelter that's built out of poplar and olive tree branches and leaves that uh, is, is built to protect people from sun and rain. It's not a house, but it's a shelter. It's, it's like a covered porch. And it's often built in the center of a vineyard. And remember, Israel is often compared to a vineyard in God's word. He calls Israel the vineyard. And a booth was often placed in the middle of, a, of an actual vineyard. And it was used, uh, when the grapes were picked, they would bring the grapes under the booth to protect it from the sun. And the workers who were taking a break would go under the booth uh, as well to, to take a break. And so it's a picture of God's protection and provision. Booths were used for the Israelites right after the Exodus for them to live in the wilderness, as a matter of fact. Symbolically, though, it is something the Israelites would actually build a small version of a booth and put it on the roof of their house to symbolize the protection and provision of the Lord. God is up here protecting us and providing for us. The Feast of Booths 
the Feast of Tabernacles, whichever one you want to call it, is celebrated at the end of the agricultural year to thank God for the harvest and his provision. And so raising up the booth of David simply means that God's protection and provision will be found in his remnant after the judgment happens. And specifically, because it was David's booth, this is God's promise that Jesus is coming. The son of David. It's messianic. Jesus is David's booth. And verses 13 through 15 are shadows of the new Jerusalem, the restored creation. The reality of the new Jerusalem is not just a New Testament issue. It was talked about in the Old Testament as well. It was referred to again last week. It's been said of the book of Amos that this is the theme. If God's justice is to prevail, his judgment cannot be averted. If God's justice is to prevail, his judgment cannot be averted. I think one of the challenges with a book like Amos is that we don't like the negative tone. I get that. It's just natural that we want justice without all the fuss of judgment. Wouldn't that be nice? But for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. Sin requires atonement. Otherwise, what's the purpose of atonement? What may be the most sad about Amos is that even with all these warnings and these wonderful rhetorical devices that I get so excited about, the nation refused to change and the Assyrians eventually came. Again, I asked this question, I asked it four weeks ago. What is going to be our Assyrian subjugation? Are we experiencing subjugation now and we don't even know it? I believe we are. I believe that we are subjugated by our false gods, our idols, and our false gospels, and we all have them. The things that we trust for our security and our joy and our pleasure rather than trusting Jesus. And I know when I ask a question like this, what is your subjugation? When I ask a question like this, the first thing we do is we think about how something else is subjugating us or how someone else is responsible for subjugating us. And, and we shouldn't think of it that way because that's the wrong way to think of it. That's part of the problem because you and I subjugate ourselves willingly. You and I eagerly give ourselves to whatever the world is offering us for pleasure, security, affirmation, and joy because we're sure that it's better than what Jesus has for us. We're sure of that. You and I are Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 believing that God is holding out on us and that there's something better. And if we just eat this fruit, we're going to find it. But God has already given us everything. He's given us everything. He gave us His Son. He gave us Himself. Let me tell you something. Listen, I'm your pastor, and I love you guys. I do. But there is no way, take this to the bank, there is no way I would ever sacrifice Shelby or Darby, either one of my daughters, so that any of you could be saved. It ain't happening. But that's exactly what God did for us. I first knew Jesus and was saved when I was 27. That's the first time that God opened my eyes and I understood the gospel. But it wasn't until I was 33 and Shelby was born that I began to understand the cost of the gospel. That little baby that was just born 
could be sacrificed to save other people who don't even like me. That's the gospel. God tells us at the end of Amos that he has this all figured out, and we're living in that reality today. The reality that on the cross, Jesus, David's booth, said, it is finished. Whatever subjugation it is that's in our lives, whatever it is that we're living in slavery to, whatever you and I are imprisoned to, whatever it is that's controlling our life, we can give it to Jesus. He can take it. No. Jesus has no idea how seriously dark I am. Yes, he does. How dark was the cross? Nothing you and I have done is as dark as that. He's experienced darkness like you and I never have. So whatever we give him is not going to surprise him. Now, it might be awkward for us to share our subjugation with someone else in this room, kind of the way we prayed together in groups a few weeks ago when Tyler was here. That would, be, that would be awkward if I asked you to get into groups to confess your subjugation to others. I, I don't know that there'd be a lot of honesty going on there, even though we're called to confess our sins one to another in the Bible. But I know each of us has a subjugation. And so we're going to do something similar to what Cody asked you to do last week. We're going to spend just a minute or two in silent prayer with our heads bowed, mournfully assessing, and joyfully confessing what our subjugation is, and then realizing that we are loved beyond any comprehension by Jesus. So let's do that right now.